so how was that for you well it was really interesting to see those colors mm. um i think i probably stopped using that kind of color in the mid 80s actually there was a film i did just after this called absolute beginners that was a uh very opposite kind of film you know it was um actually the second film ever made in super 35 and it was extremely colorful uh and then after that these kind of color schemes started dropping out of my life i think by probably by about 89 i i was i was done with blue <laughs> i was done with blue for night and um but a, lo a lot of the color scheme of this film really did did in a sense come out of uh, a lot of the the music i was doing at the time mm -hmm. and and also there was a feeling amongst myself and my contemporaries at that time that soft light was boring i mean basically when i started working as a cinematographer i sort of swore blind i'd never shoot anything with soft light because all the commercials and everything being done around that time was was all tracing paper and all soft light and it sort of bored me stiff so you know i i was interested in shooting direct with fresnel lighting with strong color and um and this film reminded me of that <laughs> uh, of course since you know i've done many different kinds of movies and been lit in many different kinds of ways but i would say the you know, there, there definitely is the Storaro Bertolucci conversation. I mean, all that influence is there in the color scheme. You can just see it sort of done probably less well, but done, you know, done in a bold way. And I think, um, I think it, it sort of it holds up as uh, for the piece that it is. And of course, the those themes at that time were completely explosive. Mm -hmm. um, both from a race point of view, but also the, you know to mix both the gay thing and the race thing into one into one movie at that time was was a bold thing to do, and um, it I think by and large the film seems to me it holds up quite well, even though I mean obviously it's very dated in certain ways, um, but in other ways I think it's still quite strong. So, so anyway, it's interesting to see. Have, have a lot of people here seen it? already i mean what's how many people in here have seen it already oh so yeah maybe a third or something yeah but it's always nice to sit on the screen properly yes i mean i i i think i saw a bit of it on tv about 10 years ago and and it was so off to look at that i just sort of turned it off you know i didn't want to see it but um in in of course it looks quite soft Mm. Uh, relative to how a, a 16 mil film blown up today looks a lot sharper. And I think that's probably partly a stock thing, partly an optical mm. thing, perhaps. And um, it, uh, you know, and the technology, both in terms of lenses and film stocks, has improved. But in particular, the DI process, mm. of course, makes going from 16 to 35 or more. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just less loss involved. If you saw this in a contact print from 16mm, it would look a lot sharper than it does mm. through a, a 35 print, but it's neither here nor there, really. <laughs> and you were operating this, this film yourself. You, you liked yeah. to operate at the time. Yes. Uh, one of the curious things that, that came out of the, um, the, the, the invention of the film school 
which was 74, I think, was the National Film School, wasn't it? I don't know when this one started, but... Um, well, we celebrated our 50th <coughs> a couple of years ago, so... 50th? <laughs> uh, so you started in 60-something Yes, then. I guess so. Right. I wasn't around then, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, well, so I you was... you went to the National... Yeah, I went to the National Film School, and the National Film School was in its... I think in its third year, or something mm. like that, when mm. I went... Um, I went in 76, and I think it started around 73. But the, at the time, the union was really fierce and strong, and you couldn't get in, basically, unless you were somebody's son or something. I don't know how, quite how it worked, but it was really tough. Uh, but the film school managed to put through an agreement with the big union, not with the camera section, but with the big union, that... Um, if you graduated and got a signed contract as a director of photography with a company, be it commercials or a feature or whatever, then, then the camera section of the union, by their laws, had to actually give you a ticket. Well, there was a huge amount of resentment about this in the traditional camera department because they all felt that, you know, you should be a loader for 10 years, a focus puller for 10 years, and by the time you're about 50, they might let you actually shoot something. Um, and that, that was, you know, that was a very, very good system in certain ways of training people because it, it did mean by the time you got to shoot, you had tremendous amount of experience on the floor. But the downside was that being a good focus puller doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good director of photography. Uh, and so the system, the people who kind of got through the system, to some extent got through despite the system. And when the film school came along, it, it, it allowed people of a different sensibility, like me, to, to come in as a director of photography, A, much younger, and also through a different channel. I mean, I came in essentially through stills. Um, and when I emerged from film school, the feeling with my colleagues in the professional world, they had this title, Clapper Lighter. Clapper Lighter. <laughs> Which was a kind of an insult, basically, saying, you know, you didn't know what you were doing. You should be a clapper boy, but you were pretending you could light. And, and um, the first few years were very difficult. I mean, there's a lot of just bad feeling in the industry about people such as myself, but it, it went away quite quickly because there were so many of us really emerging at that time and we all started working and we got work. But the characteristic of the difference between us and the generation before was that we operated. Mm. And they hated that too because, you know, it meant no job for the operator. Um, and so that, that also caused a lot of trouble at that time and actually even to this day that's still causing trouble. Um, both in this country and in America, but the, there, there is, to my mind, the kind of movie you should operate and the kind of movie you shouldn't operate. Um, and this movie would be insane to have an operator for. Uh, and indeed, any small movie with takes place in a small room and it's relatively low budget, um, why would you want an operator? It just makes no sense. But, but on the other hand, if you're shooting a film which has you know, sound stages and advanced sets that are happening in the room next door and multiple cameras and all that, I think operating's crazy in that situation because your, your, your job is much more management 
control job of you know multiple team of camera departments and so if you operate in that circumstance it actually means that you can't really take care of some of the uh, practical things that need to be done in that sort of situation but my my heart really it's much more in this type of movie than it is in some of the bigger films I've done um, and I would you know, I would urge all of you, probably work in a, in a relatively low budget films, to not have a, some kind of illusion that if you made it onto a hundred million dollar film that all your problems are over, because all your problems actually just begin in a way. <laughs> so, you know, all, all films can be made at whatever level from, you know, a hundred pounds up and should be made in the right way for that film. And, uh, and this particular movie, you just knew while you were making the movie that that this was, you know, it was sort of the locks were turning and it was correct, you yes. know, what was going on. So, yeah. I remember mm. it. I remember it being shot. You talked a little bit <clears throat> earlier about when you first got the script. Do you have any recollection of how you began to talk about shooting the film or? How well, you well, Stephen is. Um, Stephen's not much. He was never much of a one, even at. Uh, this the first film I did with him for any kind of conceptual discussion to do with light and colour, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, his great trick was to hand you a black and white movie. He never handed me a colour movie in his life. But in, in pre-production, he would generally come up with one of his... Uh, I mean, Stephen's hugely knowledgeable about cinema, and he he would always hand me a couple of black and white movies although in those days of course you didn't hand someone a movie you actually booked a theater and went to look at it um which was actually a lot more fun than being handed a movie i have to say so you'd you'd just he he would generally come up with the references and then you would hire the movie and go into a theater and look at it um i don't actually remember what movies we looked at in relation to this one but i do know that pretty much all the films i did with them they were always there were always movies to be seen, but they were always black and white. She used to drive me a little bit nuts. Occasionally I'd sort of say, how about a colour film? And he'd say, well, I don't like colour films. <laughs> um, so it, the script itself, I do remember reading, and it, it jumped off the page. I mean, it was, especially at that time, the, the subject matter and the whole, um, just the whole feeling of the movie was was... I mean, I, today I would jump to shoot this movie. And uh, then, of course, I was, I'd was i only done one film um, uh, maybe a year before. So it was, uh, it was a big opportunity for me, mainly because it was Stephen, uh, but also because I did love the script. And uh, I, think, I think most of the conversations in pre-production were to do with locations more than anything because... The locations in the film were, were truly horrible. I mean, really, they, you know, we would be sweeping out the dog shit and it, it, they were just disgusting. I, some of the rooms that I was looking at there, I could smell the room. I mean, they, you know, because London, you, you, most of you in this room probably don't really understand how bad London was back then. I mean, like, you know, you couldn't make a phone call in London in a coin box because they were all destroyed. And, uh, you know, it was public transport was terrible. A lot of London was super derelict. Um, and many of the places we shot this film were in a really, really bad state. Um, 
And, you know, there would be days where, I mean, I remember one day we had to wear hard hats because people would be dropping ball bearings from the top of the tower blocks on our heads. You know, as we were shooting, that was kind of favourite trick. And, you know, <laughs> times were tough. <laughs> so, um, there was a different era yeah, in, in so many true. ways. And uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the themes of the film and the realities <laughs> of the film are, are very topical and very mm. true of the time. I mean, it was Thatcher's Britain and things were not going well for a lot of people at that time. So, mm. Mm. So in terms of the locations and how you began to think about the shooting, I'm just intrigued as to um, how you and Stephen on the day would... Stephen, Stephen, he, um, I mean, I remember, for instance, at the, at the opening party of the laundrette, we, I think I was driving with him. Sometimes we drove in together if it was a complicated day, and then, and then we'd, you know, talk on the way in, and, and on that day, I remember him saying, oh, God, this is going to be a lot of shots, meaning, you know, what's going on in there? There's such a complex bunch of things happening from the you know the two in the back room the dancing and then and then the whole business of introducing the daughter and the com complex relationship that 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 added up to a lot of shots you know there was no question of some kind of moving master shot and then an extra close-up this it was clear that that this scene just needed very particular moments to be done and pointed up and cut into the movie to to tell the story um Stephen, on the whole, I would say in all the films I did with him, you know, we would never storyboard anything uh, unless there was... Well, I can't remember whether we ever storyboarded anything. I don't think so. Storyboards were sort of hated, really, by most people then. Probably still do, but... Um, mainly because of the idea that you would sit and draw something in a room and that would define what the actors were going to do when they walked in. That was definitely regarded as a, a mean-spirited thing to do to an actor. Um, I do remember asking him once, so how do you get from take one? I mean, we never did really more than five takes. I would, five takes was a lot in those days. So you'd be looking really at three or four, probably, uh, on average. Um, but the, uh, I, I asked Stephen once, I said, well, how do you get from take one to w what happens in take four? And I remember he said, oh, you always give take one to the actor. And what he meant by that is that, you know, all actors have always spent a lot of time the night before studying, looking, well, the good ones anyway. And they, they come in with quite a strong idea of I should play this like this. And then take one is that idea. Um, and then what a director does is he goes, oh, well, okay, that's what you thought, but here's what I want to do. And, you know, without kind of putting it like that, and then shape the performance in the direction that, that the director thinks it should go in. And so th there's a, a lot of respect involved in that, which I like, as opposed to saying, I mean, I've just been working in Melbourne, Australia, in a, in a rather unfortunate situation uh, in terms of the director. And... You know, we had previs and stuff because there were a lot of strange little creatures. It was a um, Guillermo del Toro project, so, you know, naturally it had some scary things. Mm -hmm. And um, these scary little creatures were all previsd. And uh, the director would bring the girl over or the actor over 
and show them the previous and say, oh, this is what we're doing. You know, well, to me, it was like, forget, don't do that. You know, just don't do it because previous is incredibly wooden and boring and dull for a start. You know, obviously, they're just little stick figures all moving around. So they're like fancy storyboards. Um, but to me, it's the worst idea in the world to take an actor and kind of say, okay, copy that, you know, copy what? Copy this stick figure that some artist drew on a computer. No, I don't know. Yeah, I just think that's crazy. So, so the, general, the general method we would work day to day, which was true of this film and all the films we did together really, was um, he would get the actors, you know, we'd get the crew out of the room, which I've always done my, my whole career because to me, you know, when it's seven o'clock in the morning, the actors come in all fuzzy-eyed and, and you're standing there with a the script, you know, that isn't something you want 50 people going, you know, oh, what are you doing over there? You know, so it's coffee time and they all go away. And, and the DP's job, as I see it, is to sit on a box over there, direct to work with the actors to the point where the director's comfortable what the actors are doing. And then what the DP needs to do is A, figure out if the actors are doing the right thing in the right place, because all rooms have natural light, even if it's a practical light, it's still a natural light. And the director might not be thinking about that too much, so they might choreograph a scene, so it's all great for the scene, but they might all be standing in the wrong place for the light. So that's when your delicate, diplomatic, you know, brilliant skills of like, making sure the director feels good and the actors feel good, but excuse me, can we turn it all around and face it the other way? Or whatever it is that you're trying to achieve with the, with the lighting in the room. So, so really that's the two phases as I see it of, of making a scene is director work with the actors, DP whisper in the director's ear, and blah, 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 never speak to the actors direct because that sets up a very odd dynamic that will go awfully, awfully wrong if you're not careful. Um, but always do it, you know, through the director. And then make sure, I mean, my rule is, if the scene's no good, don't shoot it. So if a director sets up a scene that I think is rubbish, well, I won't agree to shoot it. Because why bother? You'd only have to reshoot it. So, so you know, but I, I sit there a little bit like an audience member so I don't study the script while we're shooting. I'll, I'll look at the script in prep, but once we're shooting, I never open it again because uh, there was a, an old time uh, Hollywood cameraman and he was apparently irascible and nasty and he was on permanent contract, but he was kind of brilliant. But he would show up every day and say to the, you know, whoever the director was, he'd just kind of yell at him and say, well, what do you got? In a rather aggressive fashion. And I don't do that because I'm a mild-mannered, nice chap. But, um, but that is, I think that idea is, is good. That the, the, DP, the DP to me is someone whose eyes should be seeing it for the first time. The director and the actors, they've all studied the text, changed the line 15 times. They're all like, oh God, what's the scene? But you're sitting there like, what do you got? So you watch this performance, but if it's rubbish, you got to say so. You know that's your job. <laughs> well, you don't say it's rubbish. You kind of say, yeah, it might it be better if, <clears throat> and then hope that the person will come up with something better. So, 
just what sort of things are you looking for visually when you when you're thinking about how you'd ideally like to shoot it? What what, what sort of um, the direction of the light? What what would you prefer? Are the things you prefer about it? I think that question really would relate entirely to the movie. If you know mm -hmm. what I mean. In other words, there's no. I mean, I did a film last year with Samuel Jackson where I decided to light it really boring. And this was a big decision. And it's a torture movie when, with Michael Sheen and um, Sam Jackson. And it, the designer and the director had come up with a really, really sort of original and curious idea about how to do it. And eventually I shot it and I just took all the tricks out of the photography. So there's no dramatic lighting, there's no backlight, there's no shadows, there's no like one side lighting, there's no color really. It's incredibly bland. I mean, I can't tell you how bland looking this film is. I'll be in terrible trouble <laughs> with my colleagues. I think they'll all think I've gone off my rocker. But, but the material to me was so strong, so powerful, that I felt it didn't need tricks of any kind. You know, it didn't need graphics tricks. It didn't need camera angle tricks. So I shot it really bland. I mean, just incredibly flat and straight. And um, it, it remains to be seen whether it really worked because it hasn't come out yet and might never because I think the company made it went bankrupt. So, um, <laughs> so we'll see. But, but so what I'm, I suppose what the roundabout answer is that I, I think all, all photography, all cinematography is absolutely specific to the movie. Mm. And the, the great thing in prep is to decide, well, what, what's your world? Which world, because there's all worlds, especially today with the wretched DI and digital and all this other rubbish. So, you know, even more so now, you actually, you've got to draw a box and say, well, where's my movie? Because now you can do anything. I mean, you can shoot the film with a telephone, for God's sake. You know, so literally, we now have a world of, of everything, from IMAX 3D through to a phone. And, and so if you don't decide what your world is, you won't make a movie. You'll just make a mess. Because the opportunity for making a mess, I think now, is astronomic. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, it really is huge, isn't it? Because A, anybody can make a moving image three-year-old can make a moving image so so you don't need to train anymore to to make an image um we can all, you know the whole world can make it they do every day on youtube god help us um so the thing is now it's a bigger challenge actually as i see it um which i'm quite enjoying I, i'm i'm afraid of it on one level but on another level it is very challenging and that is that you you can't take pictures you've got to make pictures you know, it's a, it's a pottery, it's a craft. Mm -hmm. Making an image is a, it's a craft. It's not, we can all take pictures. Everyone in the room can take a picture. Now, 30 years ago, that wasn't true because you actually had to know what a film was and stuff and, and exposure and, you know, you actually had to know something to take a picture. So now we can all take pictures, fine. But the, what separates, so separates the winners from the losers is, is making pictures because it is a specific, particular image that each piece of each drama and every moment of the drama is it, it's required is a, okay, that's this moment. So what do I need at this moment? 
you know, what do I need a close-up? Do I need a wide? Do I need to be moving? Do I need to be up here? Do I need dramatic lighting? <laughs> They're all choices, and it's vital today in this world of, of you can have anything and everything, which is not just films, of course, but you have to say, okay, I want to live in, in this box for this movie and, and make your borders and stick with them. You know, don't, don't just go, oh, wow, this is a great shot because that's no good. You know, wow, what a great shot. It's got nothing to do with filmmaking, of, of this kind of filmmaking. Wow, what a great shot is commercials, corporate, you know, whatever. Whatever you want to do with wow, what a great shot. Making a feature movie that's a drama has got nothing to do with it. It really hasn't. In fact, uh, what's that period film that was so big two years ago that had that war shot around the beach, you know, that went on forever? Atonement. Yeah, Atonement. Well, when that shot happened in Atonement, I was like, oh, Christmas. You know, it, for me, it just... I mean, I wasn't liking the movie much anyway, but that <laughs> shot just drove me off the movie completely because that was what I call, wow, what a great shot. And, you, and you're not watching the movie anymore. You're just going, oh, I wonder when this is going to end. <laughs> so that's important to me. I, I am a great believer in the cinematography should not be noticed, discussed, mm. thought about. Mm. What people should be thinking about is the movie. So every frame I've ever made in my whole career is all about making it go away. You know, it really is about making it go away, which is probably why I've never won an award. Because <laughs> 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 no one ever noticed, you know. <laughs> oh, that would get corrected sometime, you know. Very patient. <laughs> mm. So where do you think that, um, you know, the, the essential ingredients of making a no-cinematography movie, so to speak, where, where do you look? Do you test? Do you, where, where do you find in yourself that... <laughs> that sort of inspiration for, for, for the look? I, th I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, I do test mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, producers, you know, they go, oh God, here comes Mr. Test It, you know. <laughs> and, and I, some produ producers really ver differ about mm -hmm. testing. You know, some have actually put it in their budget, probably if they see me coming, they have. But it's, it's to me, absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. And what I do is, in, in pre-production, I'll, I'll take the camera to where we're going to shoot. Mm -hmm. And then I'll kind of harass costume and design and say, you know, I want some colours. So I'll sort of put a washing line up with all, all the colours from the costumes. And they usually haven't made them yet. So, but you can get the materials. Uh, and then I'll get a, I'll get a stand-in for the day and uh, we'll go to a location that's in the movie. And then I'll phone Kodak and Fuji and say, send me everything you've got. And I do it every time because it changes every time. And, and who knows, you know, soon it'll be, send me a whatever, D21 or a red or a blue or whatever next, <laughs> next month's favorite camera is. Um, and yeah, and there, now the reason for this is, it's not just the aesthetic. I mean, the, the obviously that's the primary reason, but it, the, the main thing is to set up what I call a sort of feedback. Um, and the feedback's primarily with the director, but I also will try to get the designer and the costume designer and makeup to kind of watch these tests. And, but the main purpose is to, especially if it's the director you've never worked with, um, you just want to throw it up on a screen or, you know, a laptop, great, um, and sit next to the director and say, what do you think of this? 
Now, so it's important to me um, to make the test quite broad. And, and so I've nearly got fired a couple of times because some of the tests are terrible. Well, of course they are because you're being bold and provocative and you, and you want to work out what the director likes because directors quite often aren't very good verbally at describing what they like in terms of picture, um, but they sure can respond if you put something in front of them. So, so with the DI process now, of course, you can easily take your film or whether it's digital and, and go in and do a little grade of this and a little grade of this and say, well, look, we could make it look like this or look like this. Um, the important thing is to make those differences really bold because cinematographers can go awfully subtle and then the rest of the audience is going, gee, doesn't the last five things all look the same? Um, so to make them bold and make them conversation pieces and I think I think that's really important because you, you get much better feedback uh, if you're working as a team by presenting actual pictures, and, uh, especially if they're from some of the locations you're going to be in. Uh, so that, that would be a primary source of finding out how the film should look. And then for me, there's a lot of music involved kind of because I'm quite musical and because music's my... Uh, biggest inspiration in life, much more than painting, say. I mean, I'd say music and stills photography are the two, black and white only, stills photography, are the two main sources for me of kind of inspiration. Um, and paintings, actually I was just in the National Gallery today and, and I was very struck by, I don't know whether there's some new way of cleaning up paintings, but boy, some of those colours are really jumping off the wall from the 16th century. It's they like, are, aren't they? Whoa! <laughs> Was it like that 20 years ago? Or they, have they got some new you know, wonder clean or something? Because they're very strong and very striking. I mean, I would urge any of you interested in the colours of the Middle Ages, just pop down the road there because, boy, they're fantastic. I mean, really stunning. Mm. I, mean, I, I was... And, and nothing like what you see in a book or a reproduction. I mean, they, it's a real worth a visit. But for me... Um, Painting has never been a big source of inspiration for me because I believe that cinematography and filmmaking is just miles away from painting. It's got nothing to do with it. Um, and I, I particularly dislike painterly films, you know, ones that... I mean, if it's about a painter, fair enough, you know, Caravaggio, Vermeer, you kind of got to do it, that's okay. But a film to me that has like a painterly look, if I see a critic and it says, very painterly, I think, oh, Jesus, you know, they got it wrong because it's not painting. Film is film and, and, and it's a different medium to me and it shouldn't, there's an indirect translation, mm. but not a direct one. Of course, all the paintings I looked at were soft lit, <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of interesting. <laughs> So did you come back to a soft lighting approach at some point in your career? Well, yes. I mean, my career's gone through so many bits now, so many stages that... And, and as a cinematographer, of course, you can't... It's not the same world as a director where you can say, oh, that was your blue period, or you know what I mean. You're, you are subject to who hires you in the film you, films you do, but, but oddly enough, I mean, for whatever strange reasons, um, it is true that... The 80s, for me, were mostly urban films. Mm -hmm. um, and in the 90s, I, about the mid-90s, I did a lot of landscape films, uh, and which I love, because I live in the country and I love natural light and daylight and all that. 
Um, and that was true really till quite recently. And then last year, after doing the proposal, which is the first film in, in my entire career that ever made any real money, I think it's at 350 million at the moment, which is like, <laughs> what on earth happened? You know, it was, so, okay, great. You know, it's a fun movie. And, and actually I was quite proud of making Alaska in Boston uh, because it was all shot in Boston. Um, but really that, t that genre, you know, the romantic comedy genre from a cinematography point of view, it re that really is a box, you know, it, it, it's, it's not easy um, to do. It's not as easy to do as it looks actually. Um, but it is, a, it is a sort of a formula and kind of a technique and it's one I've done a bit of and I'd be happy if I never ever did another romantic comedy in my life actually. Um, because from a photography point of view, they're not, they're just not exciting. I mean, in this particular case, it was great because they were wonderful people. Everybody on that film was absolutely fantastic and I had a lovely time. So, um, but, but then what happened after that is I did this torture movie, um, which is called Unthinkable and hopefully will come out next year. Um, it's a fantastic story. It was, it was nine, shot in 28 days and it was eight million the budget, $8 million. The proposal was 36 million and 48 days. So, you know, it was interesting yes. to go from, from, one to the from one to the other. That was mm. quite startling. Um, and then I just did this um, Guillermo del Toro present film, which is a sort of his brand of horror, which isn't what I call really a horror film. But that was fascinating and, and lighting wise, much sort of much closer to the 80s what i was doing in the 80s lots of smoke beams of light you know lots of reference like alien and mm -hmm. and all that stuff and um so we got really really unhealthy but it but it looked great <laughs> a lot of dust masks you know mm. so just to ask you technically about the your lighting choices and you know technical equipment how do you begin to think about what you you mean actual, actual units? Actual lamps and what you, what you like using and how do, well, how do you... Well, I was saying to... Um, how did you pronounce your name? Where is he? Timon. Timon. <laughs> Where is he? Oh, he's over there. Hi. Um, Timon was asking me before the show, before this, uh, you know, we were talking about lighting and, and I said to him, one of the... One of the keys to any kind of lighting, I think, in a movie, and I, you, you can't all be cinematographers, no. Some of you are, I guess, but... So, but one of the keys is that you, if you get a 5K or 1K, whatever, a movie light out, and you put it on, it's a very uh, unsubtle, big, nasty, brutish thing that you put on, you know what I mean? It just kind of goes, bam, and... You, so your real number one choice with lighting, I think, is to, is to, yes, you've got to get all the right units up in the air, and yes, you've got to have, if you need bigger lights, bigger lights, whichever lights, but once you start turning them on, you've really got to shape them. The key is what you really put in front of the light. Do you put a tree in front of it? Do you put lots of flags in front of it? Do you bounce it off something? Um, so each light that you use I think it's really, really important to shape it. Otherwise, it looks like a movie light. You know, it it looks like movie lighting, if you like. And that, that the great the great aim for me is is like you just turned up, 
literally you turned up and it was like that. Um, there's a lovely story about Almendros, who's one of, you know, Nikvist and Almendros were the two kind of cinematographers that I was like, yeah, 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 if I could ever be like that, you know. Um, and there's a great story about Almendros turning up in Central Park after his gaffer had done a three-day pre-light, uh, you know, hanging lights all over the place. And Almendros pitched up a couple of hours before shooting and, and he had all the lights on already and he said, oh, this looks fantastic, lovely, so natural. Oh, I don't think we need any lights. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, brilliant. I mean, that was just... And he was kidding, obviously he was kidding. But what he was, he was complimenting the gaffer on how beautifully he'd cut everything and shaped everything and it just looked normal. And um, a great trick to me, and one something I often do uh, in certain circumstances at seven o'clock in the morning or you know, whenever the call is, the crew will go to breakfast, I go to the set because it's actually the time on the set where there's no one there and it's quiet. Um, and if the sun's coming up or whatever's going on, you know, and there's a window and da, 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 you can often look at the location and see real light. Mm. And often, you, you, or not often, but occasionally, you'll notice something and think, that's amazing. Mm. You know, there's some way in which the color or the shape or something in the lighting. So then the big trick is to keep that all day. Because <laughs> obviously, mm, other things happen. It's not so amazing an hour later. But that's when you think, oh, well, all right, a 5K over there will kind of simulate that, and now I need a big black thing to keep all the daylight out of there. And then, in a sense, you can, you just recreate what the good Lord put there in the first place, but you make it stay there so that when night falls, it still looks the same. Um, so I, I'm, I always work from a lighting unit point of view. Uh, I'm always kind of trying to in a sense, copy something that I've seen. And I might not see it that day, I might have seen it a month before or even five years before, but all lighting to me is just the sun came up. As I saw in the Natural History Museum today, I had a good day at museums today. You know, I saw the length of the planet, 15 billion years since the Big Bang, you know, the whole thing. Well, the sun coming up, that's lighting. You know, that's where it all started. So, so you have to look at the sun for a long time, you know, I would say a good few years to figure out exactly what the sun does and why, and why it makes the light it makes, which is totally different every day of your life. Because the way, you know, it depends, well, what's the color of the ground? You know, what's the color of the trees? Where is the sun? What's the angle? How many clouds? Blue, gray, you know, it's all happening up there with the sun. And by the same token, uh, Christopher Doyle's work, you know, which is genius, he does the same thing looking at the Bangkok, you know, uh, going out in Bangkok at night mm -hmm. and looking at the bars and, you know, the neon and da 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 and, and has derived tremendous inspiration from that landscape of the night because he's a real night owl. He um, is, So, yes. you know, he's, he's inspired by that stuff. And, and so, in a sense, he's translating, mm -hmm. but he, his sources are different, mm -hmm. but, but he's also taking so so all lighting to me is just it's all there to be had and 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 if one fails on a given day it's simply because because you forgot to turn something off you know generally you're going to light and you'll put up too many lights i guarantee it i mean if i saw all your work today in the next five minutes that the comment for me would be turn something off 
you know, don't fill so much, don't have so much backlight, don't, you don't need all that. And especially today with these amazing film stocks and incredible sensitivity of the cameras, the, it's, it's actually taking light away most of the time. And I mean, another thing I was, I was saying earlier was this whole Canon 5D, 7D thing that's going on, you know, which is so huge at the moment. You know, people are running around with these cameras at night in the cities and they're fantastically sensitive to, to just light levels. Mm. And then they proudly stick it on the web, you know, well, look how great this is. It looks so dull because it's so bright. Mm. Because what's happening is that the cameras now can see, see what the council did. Well, councils don't like the streets very well. You know, they really don't. They, they don't think too much about the aesthetic of lighting in the street. And yet people running out with these cameras thinking that, you know, oh yeah, we don't take any lights, we'll just take the 5D and it's gonna look great. It looks so boring, it's unbelievable because there's no shape, there's no feel, there's no darkness, there's no, there's no thinking. And that's not making, that's not making an image, that's just taking it away from what's already there. And, and lighting and shape of frame and composition and all that, you've got to make that stuff. Otherwise, it's okay if you're making a documentary or or a non-fiction film, but if you want to make fiction, the the frames, the images, the power comes from the dynamic in the frame, and, and you can't expect to wander out and find that Camden City Council did a great job, because they don't, you know, they just put up some something amber and a lot of fluorescence, and, and five years ago, if you shot it at T2 with a 16mm camera, it actually didn't look that bad because of lots of darkness. But now, with you know everything that's around now, it's all so bright that it just looks bland. I think really dull. So, so the challenge, in a way, is bigger now yeah. to make interesting images than it was before. I think. Have you been working on digital at all, or have you no. managed to stay away and, and stay on the thirty-five? No, I mean, I, pretty soon, I think. It'll come your way. No, well, I think I'll start being accused of, you know, being a dyed-in-the-wool film guy, which probably would be fine. <laughs> um, but I'm not anti-digital at all, mm. and uh, I'm not even anti the whole world of, you know, Mac laptop mm. filmmaking, uh, because it's all changing, it's all different, and I think it'd be silly to... Um, to ignore that or to think that somehow it was better before. Um, you know, when I was shooting my first movies and I was 30, I would listen to people my age on set droning on about how wonderful it used to be. And it really irritated me. It, there's nothing that irritated me more than some old geezer saying how great it was back in 1955, you know. And, and I made a mental note at that time. I said, I'm never gonna be that man. Never ever in my wildest dreams. So, I totally refuse to say and it was better before. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I think what's going on now is very interesting and challenging. I do think I was lucky in, in you know, there, there was, the, the, the river flowed well for me and I think it's much tougher now um, because there's a lot more sort of flotsam and jetsam, <laughs> a lot more crap around. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I still maintain that anyone who's concentrates and you know really wants to make images it should you know it's all there it's all there to do it so there's no excuses really
I really like this distinction between making and taking pictures. I think mm. it's, it's very well put there. Mm. Um, if anybody's got any questions, do just raise your hand um, and um, we will be taking questions. Um, Before so it expire from the heat. Yes, it, um, it is rather hot in here. Yes. Um, beautiful Lord Rent specifically. I found with a lot of the intimate scenes between Omar and Johnny, they were very dark, and I wonder if that was a decision beforehand or if there was pressure to just make it darker and darker and darker so that you saw less and less flesh. Wow, that's not very dark. I've done a lot darker than that. <laughs> um, yes, well, dark in itself is a great opportunity, I think, to allow an audience to feel more. Um, and I, I, let's take the moment you know, where they come up the alley and then, you know, they kiss and they lean against the wall and it goes completely black and then a headlight comes or something or they maybe move away from the wall a bit. That was very deliberate. And there is an interesting thing about in 1982, you know, two guys kissing on the screen in that manner, let alone mixed race, was clearly going to be a bit of a shock. Now, suppose I'd lit it all bright and so you could see them and, and all that. I maintain that would be less powerful because, you know, pe people at that moment were pretty stunned and going into black or very, very dark, I think increases the, the way, it becomes more like radio, if you like. You know, you, you, the, the power is that you're, you're on the edge of your seat. Clint Eastwood, who famously does very, very dark films, much darker than this. Um, his retort when someone said to him, you know, well, well, isn't this too dark? He said, they know what I look like by now. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was kind of brilliant. And it's so true. You do know what he looks like. You know, you see him at the beginning of the movie and at the end, and in between, you're terrified because you can't really see him. <laughs> and, and dark is nothing to be afraid of. I mean, the film I just did was called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And it was a genius title for me because you know, I went really crazy. I mean, it, it, this looks bright by comparison. Um, but I think, too, the, when, when you make what I would call a fully toned, bright, fully tonal bright image, you're, you're saying to everybody, here's full visual information. Now, if you think when you're watching a film, you're only watching with two senses your sound and sight. So basically, if you have full sight, you kind of listen less. That's my theory. Now, the darker you make the screen, the more you listen. Because it's just, a, it's just how we're built. You know, we, we kind of, we like input. So you can't smell and you can't feel, except you maybe get a bit sore in your ass. But, you know, so you will, you will be using these two senses and in each scene, as a cinematographer, you've got to decide, well, what do we want to really see? Uh, Hollywood is, drives me nuts with its, you know, they've paid 12 million for an actor. They just want to really see the guy all the time, full close up, you know. That's not filmmaking, that's an accountant, you know. But if you want to make drama, you've got to decide, okay, when do I want to be on the side of his face? When do I want to be on his back? And darkness is part of the, the, the armament of feeling in any, any one scene. So 
So to me, I, I didn't really ever think about this film, wow, it looks dark. I thought it looks blue, <laughs> but I didn't think it looks dark. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. You mentioned that uh, music is one of your major inspiration. How does it work? How does it work? Yeah. I have to ask my mother. <laughs> She's up there. She was a violinist. And um, so in, in the home, I sort of grew up with Handel and Bach and her playing the piano. And so I think for me, it, it doesn't work in a kind of literal sense of oh, I'm gonna, I've read this script, now I need to go and put on The Pretenders. I mean, it's not, it's not that kind of thing. It's more the, the, the world of, of music kind of... I, I will, I, sometimes when I'm thinking about a scene, I'll kind of notice subconsciously I have some sort of musical reference um, just buzzing around in my head, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I, I can't answer the question in a literal sense of saying, oh, well, what I do is I, you know, I put on this CD and then read this thing. I don't do any of that, but I'm just saying that for general, like if I'm in a really bad mood, which is quite frequent, you know, I will put on a piece of music that I know will make me feel better. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's necessarily kind of Iggy Pop or something, you know, it might, it might be anything. Um, but music to me is a really important part of life. If, if somebody, you know, it's the one art form that if I could do without all the others, but not cinema, not music, that'd be a disaster. <laughs> yes. In regards to your nighttime exteriors, yeah, and I suppose in contrast to what you were saying about shooting under council lighting, uh, I think you achieved something really particular with the underpass sequence. <laughs> where yeah. Omo sees Johnny. Yes. And I was wondering if you could speak a little about that. Yeah, that was actually, I agree. I mean, I looked at that and thought, gee, I haven't done anything that good for a while. I mean, it was really good. I thought, yeah, the, the one, the first time they went in the underpass. I mean, that was just an interesting moment technically because the Lumar, which was, you know, a remote control crane, had literally been just invented, I think maybe the year before, very close around that time. And we sort of went to Channel 4 and went, oh, we want to get a Lumar. And they kind of freaked out, you know. And uh, we used it a couple of times. Um, but they agreed, thank the Lord. And, but the remote, the, also the video tap was like probably in its first year. I mean, it was super primitive. Um, so one of the things that happened in the lighting of that scene was that, you know, where the train was, at the top there was no lighting that I did up there because we couldn't get permission anyway to shine lights at trains uh, and also when I set the crane up and we put you know the arm up and sent it down the railway track there was nothing it was black on the on the monitor I mean a hundred percent black absolutely nothing in the shot so I said to Stephen I, I you know I was there with the old handles and I kind of said well I guess if I look at the camera and figure the railway lines over there and we wait for a train, I said, maybe we'll get lucky. So that's exactly what we did. We just listened. And when a train came, I said to the grip, okay, crane down. And I was watching the camera and just figuring it was pointing in the right direction. And then as it came down into the area I'd lit, that's when I could just start to see something. But even with lit scenes in those days, night stuff was terrible on a monitor. But 
So, so there was that kind of strange technical thing. And of course, we didn't know until we saw the rushes the next day whether we shot anything. And when that, when that picture came up, I kind of, we were all like, yeah, fantastic. Because <laughs> the composition is so good too. And, and that was fluke. I mean, that was a real fluke. Um, the whole flashing light thing and the color and the, um, the way and the shadows in that, you know, when the, when the group comes forward to Johnny and all that, um, that was really nice. And, and I think there's a sort of boldness there that's typical of, you know, a 30-year-old doing his first movie and just going, well, well, bugger it, I'll do it like this, you know. And I, I think that had... It was just done in, you know, there was a lot of this film that I can feel was really me just flying by the seat of my pants and, and, and Freer's kind of just accepting whatever I was doing in the way that he does, which is amazing. You know, he sort of fully backed me up and, and no one at Channel 4 or anyone ever kind of complained about anything. So, you know, we just carried on going. And um, I, I, I mean, I do think the, the, the red and the white and the whole color scheme of that particular little tunnel was was really successful and, and really interesting and that's really just being bold about color and about how it shot that's all and of course what Stephen did with the actors in terms of the windows and I mean that was all great really good frightening yeah yes um, you were saying about uh, if if uh if the uh, the scene doesn't work for you as a maybe a, as a performance or acting wise, mm. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, you refuse to light up the scene, right? Well, I wouldn't quite. Yeah. <laughs> no, sometimes at least because you want you might want to like have to reshoot it again, right? Yeah. Wouldn't that get you fired? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been fired. <laughs> <laughs> not for that particular reason, actually. But um, Bill Murray just hated me. That was the problem. Um, but um, it doesn't it doesn't get you fired if you use your diplomacy skills <laughs> so, look I mean I'm putting it boldly if you know what I mean in, in speech terms in real life it's much more subtle and you know directors rarely will rehearse a scene and then turn and say okay let's shoot the crew that's really terrible you know what I mean? I mean, look, if, as long as you're working with a good script, good actors and good director, most scenes are going to be at least okay. I think what I've probably done a lot of in my life is make an okay scene better by just subtly suggesting that mm, maybe this could happen or that could happen. Um, I mean, when I came out of film school, I came out as a director. And my first year in London in 1979 was as a director and I had a producer and you know I had a film and it went to the London Film Festival and Berlin and this and that and I got reviews and um, you know I came out as a director so there's a large part of me that is a director it always will be so I think oh failed director or successful cinematographer depending how which side of bed I get out in the morning um, but the directing side of me and I think it's true of all all good cinematographers have a very strong directing side because otherwise why would a director employ you? I mean, they employ you to make him look good, you know. <laughs> so so he, you're his friend, you're his ally, you're not there to undermine him or, or show him up. That's not your job. Your job is to make him look better and do a better job. And 
it depends. You see, I, if I'm working with Stephen Frears, I don't have to do any directing because he's a genius. He's a very good director. So why would I need to do any directing? I don't. I mean, I might. I'm sure in Laundrette and many other films I did with him, sometimes I would say something about when I was operating. The, I think he actually operated all the films I did with him. I think that's a little different because you'll sometimes, as an operator, you'll turn from the camera and and you might say, yeah, let's do another one. And the subtext is, yeah, it didn't feel quite right to me. And it might, it's nothing to do with operating. It's because you think the guy can do better, but you're not going to say, oh, the actor can do better. I mean, that's not the line. You know, uh, the line is, let's do another one. Oh, it's out of focus or whatever. Wouldn't it uh, offend some directors? Uh, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but you know, wouldn't it offend certain directors? Like, you know, some directors, like, they have like specific uh, views about you know certain scenes or you know uh, the performance. Well, if they do, then they they're obviously not very confident about what they're doing. They should look. They get offended if you were rude. I'm never rude to a director. I'm always extremely helpful and polite and nice. I mean, it's I mean, like that. A I, you know, I, I'm I. My job is to support the director a hundred percent. But my real job is to make a good movie, because I I so believe that the names on the film don't matter. To me, the film matters because 50 years from now, you know, we're all dead. So, you know, then it's a movie. The movie's still there. We aren't, and nobody knows the name. So what are you trying to do when you make a movie? You're trying to make something that's going to live forever, unlike us. And so your job is to not record rubbish because who wants to see that in 50 years' time? So. It's, it's not, you, you never ever as a cinematographer do anything for a director except fully support what they're trying to do. Um, now, obviously, if, if I would say 90% of the directors I work with in my life are really good at what they do. So all I'm doing is, you know, once every few days, I'll pick up on something they missed or I'll say, you know what, maybe that's not quite working or whatever it is. Um, and a director never gets offended with that. Why would they? I mean, you're there to help. You're there to make a better movie. And it's not a competition. It really isn't. I mean, the relationship between a director and a DP is not competitive. If it is, you should go work with someone else. I mean, it really isn't a competition. It's a collaboration. So, so you, you as a cinematographer are there to 100% support the director and deliver to the director what their vision of the movie is. And of course, <laughs> depending on the director, the vision is really good, not quite so good, doesn't have one, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, so you have to figure out, well, where am I with the vision? And if there is no vision, you supply the vision. And, and if there is one, you help, you know, do that vision, so, yeah. Can I just ask, how did you get from being a director to being a cinematographer? People just, kept asking just, me to shoot. Right. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> I'm still waiting. Right. Right. <laughs> Somebody okay. gives me a directing job, I'll, I'll turn up. Right, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, with directors with, with vision and the pre-visualisation, what's the best way for them to get across to you without killing off your creative spontaneity, their don't, vision? How did, they, how did they get that to you? Don't be a dictator. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that, you know, the Kubricks and Ridley Scotts of the world, um, geniuses that they are, don't really need me. They need a gaffer, you know, 
because they kind of do it all. And and I think, you know, genius director who's who is on that level, not the pretend ones, but the real ones, um, in a sense they don't need people like me. They they really need people to just execute the demands and because their demands are so fine and so specific and so well worked out, I'd just be a bit of a pain for them because, you know, I have opinions. Um, but but at a, a director who's... Quite a lot of directors are um, very tentative in, in their uh, confidence, uh, maybe in their technical knowledge, and so some of them will maybe try and cover the fact they're not quite sure what a 50 is, you know, uh, with Blarney, you know. But generally, if, if, what I like the most is a really good director who really knows exactly what they want uh, is very specific about saying, this is what I thought, think. And then I, my, I'm playing through what they think, and I can pick up on anything that I think is off. And then, and then I won't say, that's a rubbish idea. I'll say, you know, well, when we do that third shot from over there, maybe we should do that like this. And they'll go, oh, that's a much better idea. Or they'll go, no, 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 no. actually, I want to do it that way. And I'll go, okay, great. So it's very important that you don't point score. And, and so for me, the, the, the whole task of both a director and a cinematographer at the beginning of their career is to collaborate and find the person you want to work with and stick with them. Because believe me, the second movie and the third movie and the fourth movie will be a lot better than the first one in terms of the collaboration. In my life, it's been about a 10-year span. And then it, after the 10-year thing, move on what's happened to me because you know too much I mean I remember Freer said to somebody somebody actually in this very room last time I was here Stephen was here too and I hadn't seen him for a few years and someone in the audience said why did you stop working with Oliver <laughs> and Stephen kind of he's laconic and funny and and um, he, he said something like well he knows what I want before I do <laughs> you know totally true I mean fair comment do 10 years with someone you're going to know what they want before they do. And, and so what he, he moved on so that he could employ people that there'd be a tension to it and a dynamic, and it would force him to work harder, force the cinematographer to be, oh, my God, I've got to work with this guy. Whereas, and then Lasse Hallstrom, who I did 10 years with until maybe last year, a very similar pattern, you know. It got better and better, and then it kind of tailed off, and now maybe we're over. Um, maybe who knows but but so so there's a dynamic between these two people I mean the the, the two people on the s film is in many phases obviously um, but the, the director in pre-production is designer producer you know all that now when the cinematographer walks through the door it's like oh my god now we've got to actually shoot it big shock to everybody and and so what the cinematographer represents is that little piece in the middle where where it's vital that those two people uh it can be the relationship can be unpleasant in a sense uh, in, in in a dialectic sense of you know you can have a war that's all right you haven't got to be like nice you can disagree as long as it's dynamic and it's leading to good work that might be the way and there, there are many examples of 
of, uh, you know, Robbie Richardson and Oliver Stone shouting all day long. Great work. I mean, you know, they were like, like this. And, and when Chris Mendes works with Stephen, it tends to be quite a combative sort of relationship because Chris is very strongly opinionated but they've known each other forever and they know it's going to be like this and it's going to make good work. So it's not about, you know, making a good movie is not about being nice on the film set at all. In fact, what happens on the film set has no relationship whatsoever to the movie, in my opinion. I mean, in other words, you can all be lovey-dovey and wonderful and think you're all great and you can even think you made a great movie and it can be total dud. And you can be having the worst time in your life and everybody's screaming and shouting and thinks everyone's a nutcase. And, and you look at it six months later and go, wow, this is fantastic. So, so don't get, you know, the, the only point of saying that is that don't, don't think that the social relationships on a film set have really anything to do with the movie, because they don't. I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but I really believe that. Because what the movie is, is another world. A movie is another world, you know, it kind of went away, it was up there. So the reality of that movie is it's in a tin can up in that box right now. But if you fire it up and show it here and we all sit there, you make a world. But that world's unrelated 100% to what happened when we made that film in a social sense, not in a creative sense. So I think people get really confused as to, you know, on sets about what constitutes a good working relationship. But, but to me, it's 100% about the work. You know, what is the work? Never mind whether your girlfriend left you or, you know, I'm not interested in people's private lives on a movie set, I have to say. I just want to come and do the work and then leave it behind when you go away. And that's as simple as that, really. mentioned uh, Absolute Beginners and the production designer was uh, <coughs> John Bede, I believe. And I'm yeah. just intrigued to know about your relationship with production designers, basically. Really good. I love production designers. And um, but the few kind of true friends I've made in the industry, um, two or three of them are really, they are production designers because, in a sense, we, we, we do a parallel job. Um, and I think... It's very, very important that the cinematographer and the production designer, you know, get together because in pre-production, a director's often really busy and increasingly, unfortunately, uh, really busy with accountants, you know, which is, drives me nuts, absolutely nuts. And when I first started making films, they said, you can shoot for four weeks before they find out what you're doing. And it was so true, because it was before spreadsheets. And so there was little blokes with pencils and big books. And, you know, and they'd make little notes each day, but it took them about four weeks to figure out how much money you were spending. So for the first four weeks, you could do what you liked. And then they'd start, the suits would start kind of walking in about halfway through production. Now they walk in when you walk in to sign on. I mean, you know, everything is about the spreadsheet and the figure. And so directors get very... I mean, horribly drawn in to a, a world of schedule, money, you know, and all this. When, and in prep, they should be doing all the artistic stuff with the production designer and me and all that. Reality is they're not. So quite often I'm the guy who has the time. 
So I will go to the production designer and to the art department and say, mm -hmm. okay, show me some models, show me some sets, show me some colors, you know. And in a terribly simple, obvious way, I mean, what you need to do is, is look at where windows are for a start, you know, because like bedroom, oh yeah, there's all these love scenes at night and the windows where, by a feet, oh yeah, that's gonna work really well. You know, so you, so you look at all the sets and the dynamic between where the light comes from, which obviously is windows and practicals, and where you visualize, oh, right, okay, they're going to be talking, you know, on the bed or da da da. And you can, in your mind, you can think, oh, production designers generally, I mean, it's horrible to generalize, but generally they're very weak on lighting, brilliant at space, uh, brilliant at, you know, understanding what scene needs, what kind of environment. Don't quite often haven't thought too much about oh the windows over there and the light goes there, um, so that's when you can get in in pre-production, and and make fantastic suggestions about. We're also the beginnings of the street scenes were quite vibrant if I remember correctly. I've only ever seen it once. Yeah, and commercially it wasn't a success, but visually. It's yeah, I mean, very absolute silly. beginners. Irony of ironies, we tested Daniel Day Lewis. What the and guess what? Mm. They turned him down. <laughs> Duh. I mean, unbelievable. If they'd take, given him the part, that I can tell you that film today would be like iconic, you know, mid-80s. It would be like on the, on the spreadsheet, on the song sheet of great movies. The film had everything except the worst leading actor ever to go on the screen. And he never got another role. That was it his one journey into film and he was he wasn't an actor uh, but the producer and the director at that time were they were hell-bent on doing a kind of Roger Vardim and discovering you know the new Paul Newman and that was their mission in life and I tested Daniel Day-Lewis and I just worked with him and I kept saying to them this guy is fantastic and they said oh he's too well known that's literally I remember they said he's too well known and I was like can't believe I'm hearing this, you know. But the um, John Beard's designs in that film were absolutely phenomenal. The studio in America, who was behind the movie, when they saw the rushes of the Soho set, they said they sent. I suppose it wasn't even a fax. Maybe it was a fax, but it certainly wasn't anything mm. but that. But they sent a message saying, "How did you manage to control the traffic so well in Soho?" <laughs> <laughs> which I thought, I thought that was kind of, that was incredible because it was a set, you know, and um, it, the the colours of that film are, were I'd done. Julian was at film school with me, and so we'd done six years of being together, kind of thing. And he was really into Minelli and three strip Technicolor, and uh, and he wanted these, you know, very very strong colours, and. Um, so we tested all kinds of things, including actually the possibility of processing the film in Peking, where they had three-strip Technicolor. But that kind of got ruled out. Um, but the, that, that was, you know, John, John's designs in that, there are some shots in that film which have flying walls, which you'd never do anymore because now it would all be CGI and green screen. But there are several shots in that film in the musical sequences where the camera goes around a room and a wall that was there has been replaced by another wall, or you know we go through a wall that was there because the walls just flew up in the air. So we were able to do continuous <coughs> shots that that really took amazing use of the space. Um, 
And it's a, it's a film, I mean, as I say, it's kind of tragic, that film. It's so tragic in so many ways because it could have been just this wonderful movie with Daniel Day-Lewis in the leading role. It does every time I think about it, I want to... That's just life, you know. You cast the wrong person, you're dead. Wrong script, wrong actor, forget about all the rest. Doesn't matter. If you get the script right and the actors right, the rest of us don't really need to turn up, you know. <laughs> we'll just take a couple more questions. It's getting very hot in here and then we'll have some drinks outside. So, Jonathan, and then we'll come. Yeah, um, there was a fantastic shot in Laundrette um, in the scene in the club, the long panning scene that seemed to suggest within one shot the passage of a whole evening. Um, oh, in the uh, disco. Yeah, where it ends up with Johnny dancing with the yes. stripper at the end. I was wondering uh, what was the, uh, the conception behind that shot? And was it director's idea? Was it your idea? Was it collaboration of it? Um, I don't remember who came up with that idea, to tell you the truth. I, yes, I really don't remember. We, we dreamed it up. Or I think we just dreamed it up on the day. Um, but it was a lovely idea, and in fact, I used it in another movie several years later in a in a not dissimilar way. I mean, you're always faced with this thing of, okay, time goes by, and uh, how are we going to do that? Um, and what we did in that scene, as you noticed so rightly, we, you know, we we turned the camera, and then the extras were legging it like mad out of the room, so that by the time we just had the two of them, we were back where we started but there was no one there anymore. And of course, I, the lighting all changed and all that, so it started with a frantic disco and lots of extras dancing. And by the time the camera had done the 360, um, that was all changed and gone. And of course, <coughs> he used the music to, to underline it. And um, it's a beautiful shot and, a, and, a, and a, just a really elegant way of telling a story which isn't like dissolved to, you know, drink the glass all those millions of techniques to to do the time jump um but i was i remember at the time i remember when the shot came up i went oh yeah this shot because i think i've only used that twice in in a film you know that particular idea uh and it, it is very lovely and it works really well and i think particularly well in this one so yeah time time lapse and you know, see, when, when you re read a scene on a page, scriptwriters love doing this, you know, and it, it says cut to usually, uh, and, and then it's something completely different but the same scene. It, it's always, you've got to put your thinking cap on about, oh, well, how do we achieve this? And, of course, there's many, many ways to do it, which that's a technique that's not used very often. Of course, it, you can't cut it. So in today's filmmaking, that's like a no-no because you commit... <laughs> People don't like doing that, so... Mm. Yeah, I've been um, watching a few films now and then watching the, uh, the, um, uh, the director, or listening to the director's commentary afterwards and they turn around and say, yeah, well, we shot this uh, day for night. Uh, mm. And I was thinking, from, from your side, do you... Would, how would you go about doing that? Day for night? Yeah. Or was it night for day? Whatever. Yeah, day for yeah. night. You mean yeah. shooting... Daytime for the night. Yeah, yes. night in the movie and day in... Day in real life. Yeah, yeah, well, day for night in the last three years, maybe, since kind of DI and digital and all that, producers are seizing day for night. It's like, yeah, let's do it day for night without any clue of what they're talking about. And it's 
proving to be quite difficult for some of the younger cameramen who aren't quite as <laughs> bold as I am or as old to just say, you know, get lost kind of thing because day for night in the city for a start, obviously, you know, for, it's, it's obviously hopeless because cities have lights. So you just can't do day for night in the city, not now, not ever, uh, unless you're in a very specific particular shot where you could go in and say ramp up you know the amount of light inside the building enormously or replace all the windows afterwards or do all that kind of thing but but day for night in the countryside um, I did a film a sort of kiddie film called The Water Horse that has a huge amount of day for night in it and that's because it was New Zealand landscapes and locks and mountains and everything and, and no amount of lighting in the world could have lit that uh, at night so Today, with the tools available digitally, you can do great day for night in the countryside. Um, the problem still remains of, well, suppose a car drives up and you've got headlights, or is there a building you know, with a little light on inside? You still essentially have the kind of balance problems we've always had, but you, know, you can cut things out now and you can have a car drive at you and actually put the headlights in afterwards. And, so all these options are there and um, day, generally speaking, unless you've got a really massive budget and even if you have, to go out into the countryside with mountains and, and roads and, and if you want it to look beautiful in a big shot at night, I would say day for night's definitely the first port of call for all that. But if it's not sunny that day, then you, know, you, you don't get the moonlight look, obviously, you get something different. So the nature of the daylight is very, will, will you, you, there's no magic sun button in the DI suite. I mean, I've had directors say to me, can you use a sun filter? I mean, straight faced, can you use a sun filter? Uh, no. And the same thing's happening now. It's like, oh, shoot it anyway, we'll fix it in the DI. You know, and it's cloudy and raining and foggy and it's supposed to look like, you know, Costa Brava. And they think you can go in there and tweak it up and get some. But that's the insanity that's going on with a lack of knowledge amongst young producers who, who just think you can do anything with anything and that cinematography is all rubbish. You know, that it's, you don't really need a cinematographer anymore because just shoot it and we'll fix it later. Fix it later has become a sort of mantra that started maybe 10 years ago it started in a small way but it's now really dangerous and so it's important i mean it's important that all cinematographers actually a know what they're doing and b can explain it clearly enough and in a nice language to a producer that what he's suggesting is not what we're going to do so would you be using uh, what, what sort of stock would you be using what sort for day of stock night. Would you be, sorry for day for night for day for night yeah well you know there's there's a lot of the traditional day for light was like two stops under and um, so you shoot about two stops under key and uh, so you sort of expose the sun if you like to be either on key or slightly under key and then you'd print it down that was in film world uh, nowadays you'll see a lot of different people go at it in very different ways. Some people like to actually put filters on the camera, so-called day for night filters, which Tiffin make and various people make, which I think are a bit of a waste of time myself. Um, 
the business about grading down the sky obviously is, in, in fact, day for night, your very best friend is, is a perfect blue sky because then you can just key the blue to black or whatever you want to do and, and it just acts like a mat. Um, so you wouldn't want to underexpose that blue sky so much that it wasn't blue anymore because blue can be your key friend in that situation. So um, I would say there's no, I mean, if you type in day for night in the forums, you will see a lot of different ideas from different cameramen about how to achieve that. And I, I again, I would say on a specific job with a specific location for day for night work, just go test it, you know, and try different things. Go into the DI suite, push some buttons, and see what everybody thinks looks good, you know. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before the screening uh, that the, at the beginning the script was bad. So I w just wanted to ask in case you had read it. I, uh, <laughs> I think you said that then that uh, Stephen Frears was going to work with Hanif. Yes, Hanif. Yeah. So I was wondering in case you had read it, in what ways was it bad, or in what ways did it become better after Stephen Frears worked on it with? Uh, well, I, I really, a you know this is thirty years ago or something, so you know I wouldn't remember the specifics, but. I just remember that all I really remember is that Stephen Stephen had worked a lot with Alan Bennett and you know some pretty pretty high-end screenplay writers and suddenly he had a new guy on his hands and obviously he could tell that this was kind of an inspired piece but he could also tell that it it was the work of a beginner if if you like and so he just had to work with Hanif to turn an inspired idea into a proper screenplay. Now, you'd have to ask him what he did. Or he, he would probably say, oh, no, I didn't do any of that. And he probably wouldn't be quite telling the truth. But he, um, I know he worked very closely with Hanif on the script, but I can't remember or tell you that I read one screenplay and then read another and went, wow, this is much better. What I can say is that pretty much every script that comes to me that will come to me say between six weeks and three months before the film is made pretty much everyone will change between when I read it and when we shoot it it won't always change for the better which is kind of terrible but generally it will change for the better and sometimes that that's why if you're working with a known director that you like working with like Stephen or Lasser or something They'll, you know, they'll send you a script and you'll go, oh, yeah, this is good, but you'll know it'll get better because they'll, they'll make it better. Um, I mean, there's quite a few famous examples of big-time actors being hired on a script and then they change it all and then they go off in a huff and don't shoot it. And, and they're right. I mean, they're right to do that. Um, so it's quite a delicate business if you've hired Tom Cruise or somebody... You, you have to like you know, send him the rewrites and keep him in the loop because if you present them with the new script on day one and half their dialogue's gone they don't like that very much so. but it's you know the, the, the director screenplay writer collaboration is absolutely central to any kind of filmmaking it, it, and it might be the same person of course but generally it's two different people but that, that period of which I'm not involved is, is um, it's absolutely critical. And I have been on one or two films where 
you know, I've come on the film, director's working with screenplay writer number two, you know, new draft, new draft, uh, screenplay writer number three, uh, panic, uh, <laughs> shooting in two weeks, oh my God, what's happening? Number three gets fired, and then it's like, hard Tom Stoppard. <laughs> you know, and then he faces it, you know, I mean, that happens. Because, you know, a, a screenplay writer, Mr. Fix-It guy at half a million bucks, these guys are genius. And, and, you know, people go, oh, my God, why do they pay them so much money? Because there's only about three of them. You know, to, to be able to read someone else's screenplay and rewrite it in a week and make it 100% better or 300% better, I mean, that is astonishing to me it, it, because they... You know, they, they read the scripts in a way that's, that I will never be able to read a script because I'm a cinematographer, I'm not a screenplay writer. They can, you know, it's like the structure, it's like an architect who looks at a plan and goes, hey, you know what, that'll fall down. You know, so, so a, a good script doctor can look at a script and just know it will fall down because he can see the structure's wrong. The, you know, the characters don't develop the right way, this happens, that happens. So. It's very, very specialised, and I, I can only say one, one, one time I did say to Frears, how do you decide who should write your films, because he doesn't write his films, and he said, oh, it's easy, just hire the best. He's right. You know, don't mess around. If you're, if you're thinking you're a writer-director, but you're not really a writer, just forget it. Go get a writer. <laughs> you know, get a real writer. Because, you know, I, I wrote my own film, film school. It's okay, but, you know, it's not great because I'm not a writer. So, you know, but I was at film school, so that was a fair enough thing to do at the time, taught me a lot. But if you go out there in the big wide world and you want to direct and you, you know, you think, yeah, I can write, that's not good enough. It really isn't because the guys out there who can really write screenplays, that's what they do. They write screenplays and they understand things about screenplays that you never will. You know, just, you might as a director, but not as a writer. So it's very important, I think. I totally agree with you because I'm a screenwriter. <laughs> 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 Brilliant. <laughs> Hooray, yeah. Well, I think screenwriters, directors, cinematographers have all learned a lot from you tonight. So thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you.